Consumer prices rising at a pace not seen in three decades. Let's find out what's going on. Greg McBride is here, chief financial analyst at Bankrate.com. Greg, let's find out about inflation. It just seems like it just keeps going. It really has. Uh, you mentioned the consumer price index up the highest in 31 years, but I think what's troubling is that it's broadening out. Uh, even if you exclude food and energy, which have both jumped in a very notable way and are squeezing household budgets, but it's not limited to that. If you remove those and just look at what's called core prices, uh, we're still seeing it increase at the fastest pace in more than 30 years. Uh, and you're seeing it across a wide range of categories. The one in particular I think we really got to keep an eye on going forward, Cisco, is shelter. Uh, we've seen home prices uh, up uh, 15% year over year. Uh, I think a lot of tenants are on the verge of, of getting a bit of a sticker shock at, at lease renewal. That's not yet fully reflective in consumer price index. That could be one of the categories that drives the increase in the months ahead. Do we see, uh, maybe it's difficult to tell, and, and obviously you adjust for uh, for the season, but as more and more people start spending money at the holidays, will that just fuel more inflation? Well, the inflation readings that we see are seasonally adjusted, and so it takes a lot of that into account. The main driver that we're seeing is that the supply chain constraints uh, have already uh, exerted such, you know, such a disruption that that's impacted the prices. And of course, the Fed's stance is we don't want to prematurely raise interest rates only to see some of these supply chain issues resolve themselves uh, and then inadvertently slow the economy. They've kind of stuck to that transitory story, thinking that the supply chain constraints would be short term. They've proven to be, uh, you know, more persistent than anybody had expected and probably going to be with us for much of 2022 as well. Thanks so much, Greg McBride, Chief Financial Analyst at Bankrate.com. U.S. home sales on track to hit a 15-year high. Let's focus on the local scene. Steve Kirch is here, real estate editor at Market Watch, based here in Chicago. Uh, Steve, let's talk about what's going on with home sales. They just keep moving, and, and I'm guessing that means prices are doing pretty well. Well, both of those things are true, Cisco. The uh, uh, looked like we were maybe hitting a lull over the summer, but September and October home sales nationally uh, picked up strongly, and this is really flying in the face of home prices that are also increasing rather rapidly. Uh, in this case, though, that's not necessarily being mirrored in the city of Chicago itself and in Illinois uh, overall. We actually saw home sales decline in October around here while they were up nationwide. Uh, again, a lot of that uh, is an inventory problem. There just are not enough houses for sale, especially in the price ranges uh, where first-time buyers and lower-income buyers uh, can get involved in this. And so uh, the sales have been cooling. Prices, however, uh, which were up nationally, have also been up in Illinois and Chicago, uh, anywhere around uh, 5 to 6%. Although in the city itself, not the metro area, the city itself, prices uh, did dip just a little bit in October. Yeah, so maybe some cooling in the city itself and that uh, you know does that end up stabilizing prices at all that, that have been rising for so long if you do have sales cooling even if it's a little bit well we have uh, nationally at least had a record run of uh, monthly home price increases uh, we don't think there's going to be much let up in that we still see 
a lot of the same trends that were driven by the pandemic, uh, people have more mobility, right? They, they're more willing to quit their jobs. They want to work from home and they want to work from a home that, you know, is, is a little bit more comfortable to work in. So we've seen a lot of people still willing to move, maybe going even farther out from the city than they have. A lot of the hottest uh, suburbs are actually exurbs these days around here. A lot in northwest Indiana, a lot of activity, and way south and southwest in Chicago. So, um, you know, that's that's going to keep the pressure on for those areas as more people tend to migrate there. Do mortgage rates at, at this point where, where they are, do they really have an influence on whether people buy or not or sell or not? Or, or are they so low, you know, a little movement here or there doesn't really change anyone's mind? Well, I think, you know, the 3% level is, seems to be a psychological one where people see it creep over that and then they decide, well, maybe I got to get in now. I don't want to see them go any farther. But really, uh, the difference between 2.83% on a 30-year mortgage isn't that much on a monthly payment. I think there is some psychological impact, but uh, you know, you have to, again, in the long historical term, uh, 3% mortgage rates are, are incredibly low. Um, it's the prices that are really holding back buyers at certain levels. And that's what's fascinating, too, is is you talk historically about interest rates. And, yeah, I mean, there you know, used to be double digits for people trying to buy houses. And yet, given the fact that it's been so long since we've had high mortgage rates, uh, it, it can seem like 3.2 is really high. Right. I mean, and again, it's it's pretty much a rel- everything's relative, right? And it's just if you want to jump, you know, you want to you, you're you don't want to kick yourself for missing taking those dollars off your mortgage payment that's going to go on for 15 or 30 years. So I, I do think that spurs people to action. They run up against the fact that there isn't a lot of inventory, and then, you know, some they have to pay higher prices is basically where we're at. Inventory is still very low in a lot of areas, down uh, 12 15% from a year ago still. So um, it's hard to find a house. Thanks so much, Steve Kirch, real estate editor at Market Watch. News that makes you money. The WBBM Noon Business Hour continues. Redevelopment is underway at the property in Lincolnwood where the well-known Purple Hotel once stood. Let's learn more from Albie Galoon, senior reporter at Crane's Chicago Business. Albie, it's always good to have you with us. So what's going on at the former Purple Hotel site? Hi, Cisco. Well, uh, the development team, including Chicago developer Tucker Development, has secured construction financing for a $155 million mixed-use project on the site of the former hotel. It would include 299 apartments, an Amazon fresh grocery store, and some retail space. So this is a good, um, obviously good news for that site, which has been vacant actually since 2013 when the hotel was torn down and i mean people in the area have to be excited as you mentioned that it's not just a you know sort of vacant land now yeah i think so i mean this this has been uh i think frustrating for the village of lincolnwood because there the, the development of the site has been delayed by uh bankruptcy by multiple lawsuits uh, uh, financial setbacks. And finally, you know, Tucker Development came along in 2018, put together a plan, 
And it took them a little time. Obviously, COVID got in the way, but but now they're moving forward with it. So I think everybody's pretty happy now. And especially with the grocery store there, I mean, it's, it's not like there aren't any others in the area, but people always seem to like when they have one that's more convenient. Yeah, I think so. Um, and it's one of those things where, you know, it's essential retail and it will, it will. So, uh, you know, the retail market is, is obviously struggling a bit these days, but, um, you know, grocery stores are doing pretty well and it, it will help, I think, uh, leasing of the apartments because, you know, if you can live in an apartment building and have a grocery store, uh, right downstairs. I mean, that's a, that's a good amenity for you. Which is, it's interesting because you're seeing, obviously, a lot of mixed use in the city and the suburbs, but especially as you have, for example, mall sites that are redeveloped and they're putting apartments there while keeping some of the retail. It's almost like in several of the suburbs, people want that, that city living without necessarily paying the city prices, but they still want real convenience to all of those amenities. Yeah, I think developers in the suburbs are borrowing from some of the more urban um, styles of development. And, um, you know, it's not entirely new, but you are seeing, you know, malls being redeveloped with apartments and, you know, having retail space and especially restaurant space close to where you live is, is an asset and a grocery store is another asset. So, um, you know, there's kind of a, symbiotic relationship there and uh you know as you noted there are several developments that are kind of in the works in the suburbs that are kind of using this model thanks so much albie galoon you read him online and in print cranes chicago business he's a senior reporter there buy sell listen the WBBM Noon Business Hour continues. Stocks are mixed. The Dow up 36. The NASDAQ is down 236. And the S&P down 22 points. Let's see what's going on. Chuck Carlson is joining us. CEO of Horizon Investment Services. Publisher of the Dow Theory Forecast Newsletter. Chuck, what do you make of what you're seeing on Wall Street today? Well, we're seeing a bit of a mixed market, as you mentioned. You have the Dow uh, Industrials, which, which kind of represent more value-oriented stocks up a tad, and then you have the NASDAQ down about a, a percent and a half, uh, which is home to a lot of the, the growth stocks. And, and that's really kind of the rotation we're seeing today, growth stocks selling off. And that's a function of basically a, a pretty sharp hike up in interest rates here. And growth stocks generally underperform when interest rates are rising. And there's issues out there in terms of are we going to see uh, increased tightening from the Fed now that it, it's clear that Powell's going to be uh, continuing his role and what does that mean for interest rates and markets are kind of anticipating that it might be a little bit of a rocky period ahead here for for those growth high PE stocks. Isn't it interesting that uh, you know conceivably a Powell renomination means kind of status quo? Uh, why would that be something that Wall Street wouldn't necessarily embrace? Well, I don't know if they're not necessarily embracing it, but I think it, it kind of there was a, a kind of an assumption that you probably would see um, interest rates rise. You know, there's a, an issue about what kind of Powell said to keep his job, quite frankly, if if inflation is now enemy number one. And what does that mean in terms of raising rates? Uh, at a more at a quicker pace to kind of ta uh, you know curb inflation and, and I think the market's kind of reading a bit of that into into it as well. If you see days like this where you have the Nasdaq down about a percent and a half, I mean the the, the you know the savvy investors looking over the long term, but but do you go bargain hunting on a day like today? 
Yeah, well, I, I think you do, it, it, and you're always going to be a little early whenever you bargain hunt. You're never going to catch stuff at the exact bottom, but you know the the best you can do is say, listen, there's some stocks out there, some you know high quality growth stocks that may be down now 10, 15 percent from where they were, and you know maybe I don't back up the truck, but I I certainly think you start nibbling on on days like this, especially since. You know the broad framework of the market. I think is, you know for the macro market is still positive here. So yes, I do think this is a time when you when you get selective and start to nibble on some of these high quality growth stocks that have pulled back. What do you make uh, overall earnings season? Not not even so much the earnings, but what companies are saying about the future, their forward guidance. Yeah, I think I think it was okay. I think it was certainly enough to support. The market, the earnings for the third quarter were certainly strong, and I think guidance for the most part um, was was within line and, and maybe a little bit better than than people expected. So, you know, again, I think that's positive as we move into 2022. Corporate profits tend to be this the single biggest and most important driver of of stock market returns, in my opinion, and and that picture looks pretty good. Now, you're going to get kind of these rotations, which we have really quite we've seen quite frankly for the last six months. 12 months where you have sectors in favor, sectors out of favor, and we're seeing that a little bit now. And that'll continue, but I think the broad framework for the, the macro market is still very positive. And uh, going forward, I'm wondering what the Dow theory is telling us here. Yeah, the Dow theory says this is, you know, very much uh, the bullish uh, primary trend. And, you know, and, and I would point out one of the areas of the market that is doing reasonably well today where it's on the upside are the Dow Jones transportation average, which is maybe the most economically sensitive index that's out there. So, you know, if you, if you're always trying to get a read on the future economic activity, the transports do a good job of that. And, you know, in the last couple of days when the market has been mixed, they've put up pretty good numbers here. So that's a positive for the market. Are the transports at all sensitive to the supply chain issues that we've been hearing about? Well, they're, yeah, they're, they're sensitive to, to that and much, much more and and that's why you know how they behave is an excellent barometer for what you can expect in terms of future economic activity because it's weighing all those things it's weighing you know supply chain issues higher fuel costs labor costs etc and yet given those factors which are certainly headwinds you've got the average still performing fairly well here and, and recently went to a new all-time high so again that's one of the the, the pegs for the bullish argument right now Thanks so much. That's Chuck Carlson. He is CEO of Horizon Investment Services, publishes the Dow Theory Forecast Newsletter. Cash, credit, debit, and totally free. The WBBM Noon Business Hour continues. It's Travel Tuesday on the Noon Business Hour. Uh, passenger levels pushing back towards pre-pandemic levels at the airports. Let's see what we can expect. Joe Brancatelli, editor and publisher, JoeSentMe.com. Uh, Joe, uh, airlines, I guess this is a test for them to see if they are actually up to it, if they actually have the staffing levels and everything back in place. I think it is, uh, Cisco, and I think, uh, as John Lennon said at the end of uh, Let It Be, I hope they pass the audition. The The problem has been, of course, massive cancellations uh, around the country, you know, in groups beforehand. It looks like so far the airlines have really worked very hard and probably at a very high cost to make sure the flights are fully staffed for the next few days. We've had very little cancellations yesterday and today. I noticed you even have a, a situation, I believe it was in, at LAX in Los Angeles, where they're, they're scheduling times for people in the security lines to, to try to make sure there's not a big rush and, and big lines. It, it does seem as though they do not want the headlines here over the next couple of days, people waiting in lines for hours. 
Well, I think that's going to happen no matter what, uh, Cisco. To give you an example, over the weekend, we had about 230,000 passengers more per day than the previous weekend. And remember, everyone needs to be at table on Thursday. This is not. This is the most secular of holidays. Everybody plays, and everybody has to be somewhere on Thursday. Nobody celebrates Thanksgiving on Wednesday or Friday. So it is the most stressful time on the on the system. So there will be long lines because simply passenger volume. There'll be long lines on the roads to O'Hare and Midway. I mean, I don't want to be the guy on Cicero tomorrow at about three in the afternoon. You know? Yeah, no kidding. Uh, what advice then do you have for people so they well, don't end up stuck like that? Well, leave. I would say, honestly, leave double the time. If you normally start, want to be at the airport, four hours, two hours ahead of time, leave an hour early, make sure you're there three hours ahead of time. Uh, carry on if you can, so you don't worry about lost luggage if, if your flight gets canceled. I would certainly look at making sure everything you can do electronically, checking in electronically, um, you know, checking into your hotel electronically if you're not staying, going to meet family and staying with family. Anything you can do before you get to an airport or a hotel is something you should do. Make sure you've got all the airline apps downloaded to your phone. And most importantly, Cisco, have a plan B so that if your flight does cancel, you know what your options are. Seems like there needs to to be patience, and, and we all know this from the airports, because if you do what you're supposed to do, you get there several hours early. There's a chance that what's going to happen to you is what happened to me a week and a half ago. You get to the airport, you get there way early, you scoot right through security, and then you're, you're stuck sitting at that gate for two and a half hours. If that happens, you just have to be patient and say, well, it's better than missing a flight or something. Exactly. It's heads you lose, tails you, tails you lose. But if you get to the airport too early and you zip through security and there's no problems with your flight, you can always sit in a restaurant, have a meal, go to an, a club. There are several common use clubs at, at O'Hare now that you can go to. You don't know to be an airline. You don't have to be on any particular airline. If you are on a particular airline and they have a club at O'Hare, United and American certainly have several. You can pay your way in. Anything is better than missing a flight because there is no flex in the system starting from today, Cisco, through Sunday. You miss a flight, you're not getting to Thanksgiving, or you may not be getting home if you're flipping it around starting Friday. What is this doing to prices for anyone who, uh, who for some reason, waited to the last minute to try to fly? Okay, if you waited for the last minute to try to fly, it doesn't matter what it costs because you're not going to find a ticket. Um, I mean, the airlines are running as fairly close to 100% as you can. Um, you know, there are there are isolated flights to Nowhereville. Uh, and the reason why there are seats available to Nowhereville is no one wants to go there. So uh, or, or no one starts there. So I think if you haven't gotten a flight right now, you're not getting one. Stay home. Have a nice meal in Chicago. <laughs> yeah, enjoy the turkey here. Thank you. That's Joe Brancatelli, editor and publisher, joesentme.com. With Black Friday just days away, one in three shoppers are still paying off holiday debt from last year. We're joined by Ted Rossman, industry analyst at creditcards.com. Uh, what's going on, Ted? People just uh, basically making those minimum payments when they put those gifts on credit cards? 
I think that is a lot of what's happening. Sometimes it's hard to separate this out because more than half of Americans already have credit card debt, 54%, according to the American Bankers Association. And sometimes it's hard to know. You know, you've been in debt for a while. Where did last holiday season end and where does this one begin? The average American owes about 5500 bucks on their credit cards, according to Experian. And even $1,000 in holiday debt, if you're only making minimum payments, that's going to take about three years to pay off and cost you about $270 in interest. So we definitely want to avoid that, if at all possible. And what do they do if they have more holiday gifts now that they want to buy for the new year, and yet they still have the debt from last year? It's a legitimate concern, especially with all this pent-up demand to buy stuff and inflation and supply chain disruptions. I really think it's a good time to take a breath, reassess, make a good budget and list, first of all. Who do you want to buy for? How much can you afford to spend? Are there ways that you can celebrate the holidays without taking on expensive credit card debt? You know, I'm thinking of things like giving homemade gifts or you know, maybe you can get something secondhand or used, or maybe you can get your family to agree that we're going to buy for fewer people this year. Maybe do a secret Santa or just buy for the kids. Chances are other people are in the same boat and they'd love to find a way to lower the bite that this can take out of your budget. Well, it would seem as though, I mean, at some point that, that, that becomes a big problem when you still have debt from last year and you add more this year and, and who knows, maybe you add more next year. I mean, at some point you can't add more debt to the pile. It does become very systemic. And, you know, a lot of people get into credit card debt because of something very explainable, that maybe it was a big medical bill or a car repair or home repair. Sometimes it's just that there's not enough money to go around and your day-to-day expenses are outpacing, you know, what you can afford. It's easy to get in and hard to get out of credit card debt. The average interest rate's over 16%. Try to avoid having the holidays contribute to that. You know, there's enough other pressures out there. Yeah, you don't necessarily want that that sort of regret that stays with you throughout the whole rest of the whole year. That's really the worry. And I know that a lot of people say, oh, well, I'll pay it off with my tax refund, let's say, or uh, 0% balance transfer cards are a great tactic. You can avoid interest for up to 21 months. These are things that we often hear about in the first quarter. So there's this kind of holiday debt hangover, and then people look into these 0% interest cards, which can be great if you use it responsibly, or the tax refund, or really the bottom line is you've got to come up with a plan and really be disciplined about attacking it because credit card debt is persistent and costly. Thanks so much, Ted Rossman, industry analyst at creditcards.com.